Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Today, I am dedicating this episode to medical trainees, medical students, residents, and fellows, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, with gratitude and really a reminder to all of us that this is where we started. Josh Prudent is a second-year pediatric resident at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and the district resident representative to the American Academy of Pediatrics for District 5, which includes Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, and Ontario. He completed medical school at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Maryland and originally came from the San Francisco Bay Area of California. Josh is pursuing a fellowship in pediatric hematology oncology and aims to become a, as he says, quadruple threat with career involvement in clinical care, translational research, medical education, and advocacy. His advocacy interests include immigrant and refugee rights, vaccine advocacy, youth mental health and behavioral health, and secure patient pediatric research funding. Also welcome Amrit Misra. Dr. Misra is a third-year pediatric cardiology fellow at Children's Hospital of Michigan. He completed medical school at the University of Michigan and completed his internal medicine pediatrics training at Detroit Medical Center. He served as one of the pediatric chief residents at Children's Hospital, and his clinical interests include adult congenital cardiology, community and global health, and transitional medicine. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Prudent and Dr. Misra. Hi, Amrit. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing today? I'm great. Hey, thanks so much for making time for me. I know you are very busy, deep in fellowship, and I appreciate you making time to to talk and uh, share a little bit about what you're doing and what it's like being a trainee. Because oh, that's yeah, that's where we all started, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, what made you decide? I know you're a fellow in cardiology, but what made you decide to go into pediatrics? Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. Of course. Yeah, it's a funny story. So I was a math major in college, and I, I really enjoyed doing math. I used to love just being a mathematician and everything, but it was kind of um, in the middle of my math training that I realized that I always wondered that, was there something more to life than just doing math? And I ended up volunteering at the children's hospital where I was doing my undergrad, and I really enjoyed it. I really loved working with kids. And so over time, that really pushed me towards applying to med school and actually ended up becoming a pediatrician after that. That's awesome. One of my nephews is, well, actually two of my nephews are in physics, which is like way over mm-hmm. my head. I it, When I talk to them about it, I feel like I'm listening to a foreign language. And one of my nephews likes to read math books for fun, which I'm like, I, I don't, how do you do that? <laughs> but he loves it. So I, you know, I'm glad that there are people that love that. Well, that's great. Well, I'm so glad that you chose pediatrics. So, and the other thing is you've been really active in the American Academy of Pediatrics and the section on pediatric trainees, which includes med students, residents, and fellows. You know, maybe you could talk a little bit about what SOPT, S-O-P-T, the section on pediatric trainees is doing and some of the focus that you guys have had on mental health. Yeah, for sure. So Every year, SOPT has an annual advocacy campaign, and we're really fortunate this year that the focus is going to be on mental health. And so we started back in October of last year, and so we are really, really excited that that's going to be the focus throughout till the next October. And so our campaigns divide into four separate quarters, and each um, each quarter is devoted to a different aspect of mental health. The thing is that you know mental health is such a big topic, and so there's so many areas to discuss. And, and you know we feel back it's really hard to do justice to all the topics. So we did our best to kind of focus on kind of the key topics that we felt we'd be able to kind of do some justice to and cover the most ground. And so our first uh, quarter was devoted to mental health in the 
um, community aspects or like equipment-based health of school and school-based mental health. This quarter that we're doing right now is focused on substance use in the pediatric population. And the next two quarters are related to uh, mental health and special populations, so patients with chronic health care needs. And the last quarter will be devoted to addressing sort of adverse childhood experiences, systemic racism, and things along those lines. Yeah, that is a big uh, chunk to chew. I know with doing this podcast and trying to, you know, fill it, I find that, you know, doing something weekly about mental health, I think, oh, I'm going to use up all my time. But no, there's just so much to cover. I'm so excited that you've chosen mental health, because of course, that's near and dear to my heart. What what kind of projects do you guys, I mean, what sort of action oriented things do you guys focus on? Yeah, for sure. So each quarter, we have a webinar that will kind of gives an overview of the topic at hand and also gives different ideas for different advocacy projects and resources for to address that topic for the quarter. So for our last quarter, for example, we had a list of different resources and ideas for advocacy projects related to advocating for community mental health and the schools and other sort of aspects related to that. Same thing this year, um, this quarter, right, just some years, that's what our plan is to have a speaker and also have some resources related to that as well too. Our goal eventually, you know, we are with the new Congress that's um, and the new bills that are going to go through Congress. Our goal is to, once some of those mental health bills are going to be working their way through Congress, we're going to have some days of action related to some of the mental health advocacy bills that are going to be coming up. And so we're really excited about that. And we're you know, waiting to keep um, our trainees posted about that as well, too. Um, but yeah, things along those lines, like we, you know, I we always kind of structure is that, you know, there are definitely some things you can do within your local level, but we're also encouraging our trainees to connect out to the state AAPs as well too, because our state AAPs are doing a lot of really great work on the state level regarding mental health legislation pertaining to sort of like state specific laws and everything. Yeah, I think definitely in terms of making something happen, it's those connections. I mean, that's kind of how I got involved was I contacted my Michigan chapter and just said, hey, I'd like to be on the mental health committee. And there wasn't one. So I was a committee of one. (laughs) So, you know, um, and there it goes. But, you know, I think that's the power of the AAP is that, you know, one person can start to, you know, start a movement. And, you know, your section is a powerhouse for advocacy. I mean, I've just never seen anything like it. I mean, you guys are rocking and rolling big time. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so how many, how many, you know, trainees do you have in your section? It's hard. I actually don't know off the top of my head. It's quite a bit. At least it's a few hundred trainees. Like it's quite a bit. Um, Right. Yeah. We're very lucky. You know, we're very, like, they're very dedicated. Like we had our, our first, um, our first uh, webinar for last um, back in January was a town hall and we had all the districts come together and it was really inspiring. Like all the districts had some really fantastic ideas about how to implement different mental health advocacy projects in their different states and their different districts. And it was nice because each of them, like they really were tailoring to based on the needs of their patients and what they were seeing on the ground, which was, was really inspiring. And also very like, it spurred a lot of really great discussion on what sort of things that each of us within our own districts could bring back and what we could learn from the other chapters as well too. Well, I'm just so excited when I hear, you know, young people like yourselves wanting to like, you know, take up the lead because I think a lot of times we say, oh, you're the future. Well, you're not the future, you're the now. I mean, and you guys are making stuff happen and and it brings a lot of energy and I think excitement to national and also to the states. So one of the things I was going to ask you a little bit about is what do you think about mental health training during med school residency fellowship? Is, is it enough? Are you getting everything you need so that when you get out and practice, because, you know, I guess in primary care, we see lots of mental health, but I'm betting in cardiology, I bet you guys see mental health stuff too, right? Oh, Absolutely. You bring up a great point. You know, I feel like in med school, like we got, and even like in residency, I got some mental health training, but it's nearly not enough as that we need right now, just because we've been doing more and more diagnosing. And I think we've just become better at recognizing signs for depression, ADHD, autism, and things along those lines. But the amount that we need to know and we should be able to do is congruent with how much we're learning currently in our training as well too. In cardiology specifically, I think we, like, you know, we recognize a lot of like these mental health problems, but I feel to some degree that, you know, we don't, 
like because we're focused on the heart itself like we do our best to address some of it but we definitely could do a better job as well too and some of my training here like as a cardiology fellow hasn't been devoted to it but it's really not as, not as much as i feel like i should be able to do for my patients as well too i think part of it too is you know being in in detroit right now like our resources are a bit limited and so when your resources are a bit limited it becomes you know it becomes a little bit difficult to figure out how to navigate the system but i think when you think about our training ourselves, like you know i think we do a lot of good job of like describing like here's what depression is like here's how you diagnose depression here's how you diagnose adhd but there's not enough talk about like you know if you're in these situations where you may not have a child psychiatrist really available what are some of the things you can do you can kind of to navigate that kind of build that kind of bridge until you're able to get your patient to like a child psychiatrist or a therapist and everything and so that's why I'm hoping like that's where training will go to kind of help that sort of problem shooting and troubleshooting kind of aspect of it. Hey, Josh Pruden is with us. He just stepped in and we're glad to see you. I see you're wearing a mask, so I know you're busy working. Yeah, just coming from one of the floors, seeing another kid, but I'm happy to be able to join you guys and my kid's healthy enough that I can join in for a second. We're glad to have you. So Amrit and I were just talking about the section on pediatric trainees and some of the work that you guys are doing in mental health. And then we were talking a little bit about mental health education for med students, residents, and fellows, and is it enough? So what do you think? Um, I think it, I could imagine this being very variable across the country. If I reflect back to, for example, medical school, I feel like there was, there's always this big section of the curriculum that's focused on you know, psychiatric illness and mental health. I think that there are a lot of gaps in that section. Often enough, that section is taught from an adult perspective and often is missing a lot of the pediatric mental health components and behavioral health in particular. And then like when you come to residency, at least my experience here has been pretty good. I'm very happy, particularly we have behavioral health here, uh, developmental and behavioral pediatrics, and we as residents rotate through that block. And that exposure through that block is an amazing experience to learn about uh, the behavioral management of patients with uh, ADHD, severe depression, severe anxiety, autism. Um, I must admit that I wish that more of that education was sprinkled throughout your earlier time, just because that is a module we do in our first year. I'm happy it's in the intern year because then you have that experience. But um, for as you, you wait later in the year to get that, somebody that gets that on their like last month of intern year didn't have as much uh, of that educational component earlier on. I think that just is some of the consequences of having um, a lot of your behavioral and mental health education as rooted in a block that the interns will eventually do versus um, having it be a key component of some of their orientation or early lectures. And then I think that there's always more room for medical students, residents, and fellows to learn about what they can do to help people who have mental and behavioral health issues. Um, I think that a lot of times in the in the field, there is this sort of mentality that we can refer to the specialists to help with these issues with psychiatry, psychologists, social workers, counselors, developmental behavioral pediatrics. And uh, I guess I can use this platform to say that there often is a, an extreme need for these types of resources and not enough of those specialists to go around. And so I would say that even though we do receive a good amount of pediatric mental and behavioral health training during my residency experience. I don't think it's an, probably enough for what we are going to be expected to be able to do once we're pediatricians, which is for most things being able to manage patients in our primary care setting and not referring to anybody else but ourselves. So now, Josh, you are training at a big medical center, correct? Mm -hmm. That's and also a big thing. And where where are you? Remind me. I'm at Nationwide Children's Hospital Nationwide. in Columbus, I knew, Ohio. I knew it was Ohio, and I, I'll have it on the intro, but I wanted to make sure I got it. So <laughs> you guys actually have quite a few resources where you are. And are you thinking about primary care? Are you thinking about specialty? Where are you wanting to go? I'm a specialist person. I'm interested in HEMOC. And, you know, developmental and behavioral concerns become, mental health concerns become a huge thing in the world of oncology, sickle cell disease, hemophilia. Um, and those are very nuanced topics. 
I feel like the the complexity of that, though, that I like to add is that when you are a specialist or any specialist listening in, um, often enough, you have the big hospital behind you, but making sure that you are still able to handle some of these topics and speaking from that big institution, like you spoke of, Dr. Ugino, a lot of people that are in like a, let's say like a rural community physician is not going to have the level of resources that we have here and is many times going to be have to handle a lot of these things on their own. Though I would encourage them to make sure they have some people to bounce ideas off of, to call and talk with if they have patients who are more complicated. Absolutely. And by the way, we're all friends here. So feel free to call me Leah. (laughs) That's totally fine. Thank you. So, you know, I guess a couple things. One is I've done several podcasts with a group of psychiatrists that are from the University of Michigan and part of what's called the Child Psychiatry Access Program that 30 states have now, which are basically child psychiatrists that are available to support primary care um, in the field. So it's a Mm -hmm. consultation like, hey, it's having a friend hold your hand basically and provide you lots of really good information. So I I think those are really important services that listeners out there need to know about because you're right, you know, in a big area where you are, you're going to have child psychiatry, although the wait may be still long. Um, But the other piece that, and I think why I started this podcast in the first place is primary care and subspecialists. I mean, you guys are going to have to deal with mental health stuff every day because we bring our mental health with us in our bodies everywhere we go. So it's not like you can parse it out like, oh, no, we don't do that here. So, I mean, one of the things is that, you know, should we all be just screening for depression? Should we all be screening for suicidality? And a lot of people, especially in the the suicide prevention world, would say any touch we have on a kid, maybe we should be asking, are you having thoughts of killing yourself or having thoughts of suicide? But, you know, that takes training and it takes kind of a, a level of comfort to be able to do that. It took me a long time. I mean, I had lots of other words for it besides killing yourself or suicide. You know, it was yeah. hard to go there. So I'm so glad that you guys as a section are really advocating for mental health because it, it's critical. And, you know, certainly in the adult literature, you know, outcomes, if you've had an MI, you're going to do way better if you're not depressed. So if you have your depression assessed, and I would guess, I don't know that there's studies to support that, but I would guess that translates into, you know, if a kid's in a better mental state, they're going to do better. And then there's the whole piece that you sort of touched on, Amra, and that's the whole, you know, adverse childhood experiences. And I know you guys are both in big cities, and especially where there's some urban populations, big underserved populations where this is huge. And what we may think is aggression or, you know, a a bipolar kid is really a traumatized kid. So tell me a little bit about what you, you know, what's your training on adverse childhood experiences and how are you integrating that into the work that you guys are doing? This is so perfect. Um, Just because like, I literally... I don't think it's against HIPAA. I literally had this conversation with the patient I just saw who has some, you know, changes in behaviors. And I'm like, let's go through some ACEs and make sure that there isn't like a concern that a traumatic event is contributing to the current presentation. Because of what you mentioned, that these like ACEs have significant impact acutely, but also chronically long-term People think that, oh, this happened two years ago. That's not going to impact our patient anymore. But people still think and reflect upon those traumatic moments and their life experiences. I remember when I talked with um, Vince Folletti, I've been really privileged to actually, we brought him here to Kalamazoo. And, you know, in talking with him, he just said, you know, so much of the impact of ACEs, undoing that is asking about it. And that one of the phrases that he said is the asking is in and of itself therapeutic because it dispels shame. Like maybe some of these things happened and the way he phrased it was, how do you think that impacts your health? Or do you think that impacts your health in any way? You know, it must be hard that you have had difficulty, you know, with your mom's 
drinking, does that, do you think that affects how you feel about things? Does it, you know, affect when you get stomach aches? And I'm so glad to hear that you're kind of incorporating that. How do you think parents and patients respond to those questions, Josh? That can be a nuanced question. I think it's often about how you approach it. When you make it like a standard of your, you know, your approach to every patient and you present it as such, I think that people, people understand what you're trying to do, that you're trying to incorporate their whole lives into their medical care and things usually go very well. I think sometimes people can see it as, uh, why are you asking me in particular that question, thinking that you are introducing some type of bias you're sort of showing your bias against them for some particular reason. Maybe maybe they are poor, maybe they have low education, maybe they have, um, they're from a minority group um, and they feel like you are now asking these questions because you expect them to be positive. Versus, like you're making an assumption. Yes. Yeah. And then just making sure that, because that, even if you say this is my standard of care before you do that, even if it's clearly very protocolized, you need to be able to have, be prepared to have a conversation about how you have been trained to utilize the ACEs, how you, what the research is like for its impact on child health. Because if somebody does have that, you know, is upset about being asked, you need to be able to explain why you're asking. And I think I had a, I had an old attending who's like, if you don't know why you're asking, don't ask. And also, if you don't know what you're going to do, if somebody yes. says yes, exactly. then, then be careful about asking. What about you, Amrit, in fellowship? Do you see where adverse childhood experiences impacts the patients that you see? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I can, and like, I think as a, as a subspecialty, like we don't do as good of a job as primary care and screening for them, but definitely, you know, you can see within our families who are dealing with kids with chronic medical conditions like chronic heart conditions, you know, they're a way they approach the kids and with the things that they have to deal with. It becomes a really big impact. Um, I was fortunate, like it's part of my training. I got to do some home visits for some of the families. And so seeing some of those, I think that was pretty eye-opening. So in some of the areas that we, I went with as a part of the home visit, like some of them are more dangerous areas of Detroit where there's a lot of gun violence essentially and sort of trap like a gun gun war like drug wars and things like that and so some of the conditions that i was able to see like with a family is kind of dealing with which is it's interesting to some degree because you know when I was doing the home visits, I realized like how much I wasn't asking um, in my clinic visits because I feel like as like a subspecialist, we tend to focus a lot like, you know, like, oh, like, you know, cardiology, what's your oxygen level, what's your vital signs like and things like along those lines, but going to those homes and actually seeing what the living conditions are and just like getting that sense, like I feel people felt more comfortable in their home environment. So the, they were able to open up a little bit more about what they're going through and they're a little bit more vulnerable to some degree. And so being able to see that actually really opened my eyes into some of the things that they were going through and how essentially beyond ACEs, just the social determinants of health really played a big impact into their families. You know, I, this is, you know, I still like reflect on them right now. Like I had to stop them because of the COVID pandemic, but to some of the things I was able to see, um, you know, just, it still strikes me. It just realized, it makes me realize too, like, you know, how much else I can need to do. There's how much more I should be doing when I do these clinic visits. But a lot of the time is trying to find that kind of that fine balance. Cause I think as I feel bad as like a subspecialist, I think we have set the expectation that, you know, when patients come in, we're going to talk mainly about heart issues actually. But as a subspecialist, we need to kind of branch out beyond that and talk more about, provide more holistic care essentially where we go beyond the heart and talk about other things that could be affecting the heart and their care as well too. Well, and I think the thing is, is their medical condition is so incredibly impacted by where they live or, you know, I mean, I think about, you know, ADHD and, you know, a kid who's failing school. Well, if I'm sleeping in a homeless shelter, I sure as heck, I'm not going to be worried about my homework. You know, it's just out the window. And is that because I'm a bad student or I'm distracted? Well, I may be anxious about, am I going to eat? Um, and I think, there is, I think what you're talking about, there's this humility that you have to assume with these patients. And I think for you actually stepping into someone's shoes and seeing, you know, where are they coming from and being mindful of that when you're saying, hey, you need to take this medication three times a day, you know, is that feasible? Is there somebody home that's going to be able to help them do that? 
I mean, it's so much more than just the medical piece, right? You bring up a great point because really great thing about like doing the home visit because I it was that I also uncovered biases that I never thought I had within myself. I think, you know, like as like a pediatrician, you always like think that, oh, like I'm really free of any bias. But when I was like, doing these home visits, I realized that, you know, because, you know, I think like some of these like patients that did the home visit for, these are patients who weren't were having issues with follow-up essentially with our clinic. And so I think from my, like when I initially approached it, I was like, you know, like, well, like, I don't know why they're not following out. There must be like, you know, again, I think like in the back of my mind, I was like, well, they don't care really things along those lines. But when I actually did those home visits, I realized like how wrong I was essentially that, you know, there was other things that were going on in the home that really like impacted their ability to do even like very simple things like obtain medications. And so doing this was like, you know, that was the nice thing about this is that again, like, like, I think as physicians, especially like as beyond just being a subspecialist, you know, like as I said, physician in general, I think being able to do these things and recognize your own biases and being able to address them is very important as well, too. And that makes you a better physician overall. That takes a lot of courage. I mean, and I appreciate you recognizing that in yourself. I think we all come from that. I, I have, I remember one of my families that had to take the bus to get to our office and, you know, we're in a smaller community. So the buses in Kalamazoo, you know, the system is much different than a big city, you know, and sometimes they'd be here late. Well, you know, we have policies like if you're late, then you might not get seen. And I had to be mindful of, you know, if they're here, I need to see them. I need to figure that out because they're not being lazy. This is a a problem. You know, they're just doing their, their best to get here. What about you, Josh? Do you see some of those other um, kind of being mindful of that that's made an impact on you? That speaks back to one of the things you mentioned earlier. I feel like in a lot of my, like even in medical school training, we were taught that it's not that you are unbiased, it's that you have biases that you need to be aware of and to control. To assume that you're unbiased is basically incorrect. It's almost impossible to be unbiased but it's important to be aware of those biases and then take steps to check your own biases to re-reevaluate what you're doing for each individual. I think that there's definitely like a component of that with some of the patients that I meet. At this point, it might be partially because of the sort of patient uh, populations I've worked with previously, but uh, the different biases that I have um, are just very niche. And I always have to be like, am I thinking about this wrong with a peer? Am I perhaps leading myself too far away on this when I talk to an attending? Or even like with just, even with the family, like, I apologize. I keep thinking about this topic. Am I wrong in that? Um, Am I in thinking about your, because you have our low socioeconomic status, I'm worried that you actually don't have access to good food at home. And that's why your child's been losing weight. Is that unfair of me to ask about how things are going? And uh, is it unfair of me to, to be concerned about that? And I think that even patients are able to help you check your biases as long as you approach it with a level of humility and wanting to improve yourself and wanting to check those biases. That's a really lovely way that you put, like, sometimes I make these assumptions that somebody in your situation might not have access to food. Am I correct in thinking that? Because you may not be, (laughs) you know, on the other hand, I'm assuming when I give you this whole dietary recommendation that you are able to access lots of fresh food and that's not doable for you. So yeah, how do we make it easy for our patients to talk to us about these things that are, I mean, sometimes there's shame involved about that. But I think you also brought up a really good point about biases. And, um, you know, I thought I was way more elevated and evolved. And, and when I kind of caught myself, I was, you know, there's part of it, it's almost like embarrassed, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I had that thought. But, you know, like you said, I mean, we're not perfect, right? We're not all fully evolved. So it's, it's a work in progress. Well, I'm surely excited knowing that you're the next generation of physicians that are coming in from behind us, you know, um, that you guys have this in, in front of mind. I sure didn't get it, but you know, I'm way older than you. So, um, and I had to kind of learn it along the way. And, and you guys have much more of a language for this that I think is really important. The other thing I was going to 
mention, and I have a podcast that will um, air after yours. I met with a medical student. Um, his name is Christopher Veal, and he's at the University of Vermont. And he talks a lot about uh, mental health and medical students, and in fact, did a whole project on gathering stories from medical students because of this stigmatization and how hard it was to get help um, because there's this um, kind of fear of failure. Um, one of the people telling a story said something to the effect of, you get to medical school and you think that you've arrived and you're only at the beginning, you're only at the starting line. And so what do you think about your, you know, experiences with your fellow medical students, residents, fellows, you know, about your own well-being? Is that something that you can address in your section? I mean, tell me a little bit about that. I think that um, it's good to see there's been, especially with some of the data that's come out in the last decade or so about burnout, there's been a new shift in perspective about what it means to train people to be fully, be a fully trained physician, including making sure that they're aware of their wellness and that they're not going to over time fry themselves. And I think that that is becoming more and more present. And it's not what's been really refreshing. It used to be, I feel like even in my early time in med school, it used to be a lot of things that people would mention to promote your own wellness, like do yoga, do meditation, eat well, sleep well. And then you might, uh, as the astute resident, be like, it's hard to eat well, and I don't sleep too well because the shifts are long. And uh, I don't like uh, get too much time to meditate because I have other commitments. Um, but I think recently, especially during my residency time, but maybe even in uh, when I got some more time in the clinical component of my medical school education, I feel like I was hearing more about um, systemic changes that people are trying to make, like um, really uh, embracing like a community aspect to these sort of health, uh, like wellness topics, have the residents sort of come together and support each other. And then um, not only like saying do these things, but actually having small modules on how to do them and where to find the time. Maybe I know that there was, they do a very good job. There's like a wellness committee amongst the residents here at Nationwide Children's. And they usually at least once a month, one of our noon lectures will be wellness focused. I remember at one point we read a poem together and just talked about what it made us feel like. And it was good that that was, that was integrated into our educational time. It wasn't an additional thing. It was something that took the place of something else. And thus it wasn't extra work. It was just a time that the residency set aside for us to think more about ourselves and how we interact with our patients. And I'm just, it's been nice to see that integration of some of these efforts. I think you you do have to cut out time. I mean, I honestly think back about, you know, being a resident, which was many years ago, you know, and back in the day, I mean, we were on call every third night and, you know, we didn't have our limitations. I mean, you could be up 36 hours, which, you know, it was sort of like a badge of honor, you know, like, oh, I didn't get, I mean, I remember sleeping in an ICU bed just because I knew they're going to wake me up all night to make vent changes. And so I just got in a patient bed and stayed there, but, you know, but I don't think it was good for me. I mean, our, you know, the residents we used to have, we called it liver rounds. We'd go out on Friday nights and, and drink. Yeah, I'm not sure that was a great thing, but we, you know, we commiserate. But I think maybe this focus on wellness and as a resident, I had really bad postpartum anxiety and depression. And I mean, we didn't, I, I, I had to fight for leave. So I'm so glad that you guys have evolved from beyond that, you know, and that this is part of your, your conversation, because you have to take care of yourselves. What do you think, Amrit, in your program, if, if your fellow, you know, residents, med students are struggling with depression, anxiety, do you feel like it's safe for them to ask for help, that there's help to be had that's confidential? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think, I agree with Josh. I think there's been a lot of good 
progress over the past years from my when I began training like eight years ago to now like I've seen a lot of changes in the sense that there are more resources available um, and there's more things that people can do to kind of seek out help but I still think that there's a bit of a stigma around seeking out that help and I think that's the one of the limiting factors because I was, I was a chief resident before I started a cardiology fellowship. I can tell you, you know, I've definitely met with people who they just were so nervous about seeking help because they were worried about what their peers would say about them. And so I, I think it's unfortunate to some degree because I don't think, I think it's not like that. I think people are very willing to accept people like, you know, accept people like people are not as judgmental as people think they are, but there's still that fear that, you know, it's kind of the old school mentality that you have to like tough it through, like, you know, do your shifts, like don't be like a, don't be like weak or anything like that. And so I think that's the progress that needs to be made essentially is to try to move away from that previous thought thing that training is like that now and trying to go towards this more newer model and since that you can seek this help it's okay like to feel sad it's okay to cry sometimes as well too that was thing. i was a med peds resident so that was the kind of the funny thing on the medicine side when i was go like when like patients were dying like, you know like you know like i felt like you know sometimes like i always want to cry but i always got that sense of you know like it's not okay to cry because you know we're medicine like medicine and you're not supposed to cry during it when you're a medicine resident because that's the type, like you know death is part of life as a medicine resident so just right i think Josh brings up a good point because you know the whole idea is just normalizing these feelings are okay like training is difficult like, you're going through all this together like it's okay to feel some of these things like you know everyone feels it to some degree in different modalities and it's okay if you feel a little bit different if you feel more sad than one person that's not a bad thing that's just how life is sometimes. We're human too, right? Yeah, I think that you, you know, really touch on some really important things that I hope that people can ask for help. But I, I do think you're right that, you know, we think that, you know, is it going to affect my be, being able to get a residency position? You know, if I had to take time out for, you know, I had to take a mental health break for something, or if I'm going to see a therapist, can I get time off to go do that? Is that okay? Um, you know, is there a substance use issue? And we, we know that suicide rates in med students and physicians is, is pretty high, which yeah. is scary. And we just don't, um, you know, we just think we're somehow immune from that. And, you know, I, I think one of the things I think about with some of my, you know, it, attendings when I was a, a med student and a resident was teaching by humiliation and intimidation. And I hope that that's not the case anymore. But you know, that somehow of making you feel small and um, stupid and um, ineffective that somehow you're going to, you know, step it up and learn better. I'm not sure why we think that's a good thing. We certainly don't think that's good for kids. <laughs> why would we think it's good for our trainees? So I hope that you haven't encountered that, but that was kind of standard fare for some of my, my attendings. No, I think that we've been we've been lucky. I think that there, as Amrit said, there's been more of an awareness. And so the uh, attendings that have been coming on, at least in my experience as a resident, being one level down from Amrit as a fellow, um, have been more understanding and have approached us more willingly. I can think of two examples of that. Um, one being, uh, I know of the Hemong service here had a very, very tough week a few weeks ago. Um, a lot of devastating issues happened and the attending like that entire week was that she would use her lecture time to be focused on topics about um, processing what had been happening and talking about her own feelings of depression and how to manage her own feelings, how to seek help if you needed to. And you and didn't think like, less of her, did you? Nah, I always respected her. <laughs> She well, has always respect. She is like so. Uh, she's always been so open to us, and I think that attendings very much model the type of behaviors that they should want from their residents. And I was happy to see her open up to the the team like this. Um, another example that I also like to mention is somebody just opening up about their own experiences. One of those wellness modules that I mentioned was from a, a junior faculty here who spoke about their um, battle with alcoholism and really spoke up about their own issues with mental health and walked us through their story and was very open about it and really encouraged us to be open about our own mental health and behavioral, our own mental health concerns, just any, whenever we are feeling like that to be, to encourage us to feel comfortable enough to talk to each other and seek assistance like Amrit had mentioned. 
I think that was the message that I got when I was talking to Christopher Veal. And again, um, for the listeners, you can tune in in May because I'll be um, hosting that episode. But, you know, his, you know, he just said, I needed to ask for help and I needed to know that it was okay to ask for help. Um, you know, that that's, that that's really important. Did you have any other thoughts on that, Amrit? No, I agree. I feel like my personal experience, I, I struggled with the death of a patient earlier, like in my fellowship, I was a very close to a patient who passed away. And one of the best things, one of the attendings I knew who was relatively close to, one day we just were working on something and she just stopped me in the middle of work. And she's like, Amrit, I know like you're, I can see like in your eyes that you're hurting from her. And we actually had a conversation about that. I really appreciate, you know, Thomas, like, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that because I think it did twofold, like, you know, it kind of, you know, I didn't, I knew for a friend, like, I just never felt like, you know, I'm a little bit kind of inwards. I never feel like opening up about it, but to have like an attending who I respected really normalized my emotions and tried to encourage me to be open about them. It really meant a lot to me. And I actually felt much more, com- after I talked to her, I felt much more comfortable talking to the other attendings about it. And, and to my, you know, I mean, I should have been surprised about, it, but I, you know, when I was talking to the other attendings, I found out that they'd felt similar things about that patients passing as well too. And so I think going back to what you're like, you know, what you were saying, like just being aware that it's okay to talk about these things makes a big difference. And I think that really opens up people to the prospects of getting help and getting um getting the help they need essentially. I think patients and parents want to know that their children touch us. I mean that they move us you know, I mean, it's not like you want to just, you know, fall apart sobbing necessarily, although that might happen. But, you know, for par- parents to see that you are moved by what's happening, their child's pain, their pain, I mean, to be with them, you know, honestly, I mean, you can be the most brilliant um, scientist, clinician, and if you don't, if you can't pick up on that, you may miss the mark. And I, I think back, my husband had a pretty serious medical condition. He had a popliteal aneurysm that was enormous. And uh, he had lots and lots of surgeries. And one night we were up, you know, all his surgeries were in the middle of the night and he um, had a vascular surgeon, you know, these surgeries went on for hours and hours and hours and everything went wrong. There, it, it was the model patient for bad outcome, <laughs> infections, leaks, whatever. And the surgeon sat down and he just said, I am so sorry. And he teared up. And I'm telling you what, he could have done anything after that. I would have gone anywhere. I trusted him so much because he showed me that bit of vulnerability. And and I knew that he knew how scared I was. And so I, I think of that often. Well, in talking to both of you, I know that you're going to be wonderful uh, physi- you already are wonderful physicians, but that your patients will be very lucky to have you because you're keeping this front of mind. And and I'm so glad that the section on pediatric trainees is thinking about this because hopefully, you know, in 10 years from now, we won't have these conversations because it'll just be woven in, you know, it'll just be part of what we do. So this is kind of what I always ask my guests is if you could go back, so it could be as an undergraduate or med student, and you could tell yourself something, what advice would you give your younger self? Amrit, why don't you go first? I think more of it, I would tell myself just to relax a little bit and just kind of enjoy the process. I think a lot of times like where people who are applying for med school residency, it's always about the next step, you know, like when you're an undergrad, you try to take your MCATs, get to med school, then med school, you do your steps and then get your residency, the residency to fellowship. But I realize now, like in retrospect, it was the whole process of going through training that really made me the person and the physician I am today. And so I think I would tell my younger self that don't worry about like these arbitrary, like stat, like, you know, these deadlines and like these things that kind of demarcate going from one step to the other, just enjoy the whole process and kind of just go with the flow and see what happens. And be much happier that way. That's probably a good advice for everybody, <laughs> you know, just enjoy the ride. How about you, Josh? If I had to go back and tell myself, uh, give myself some advice, I think it's uh, probably like, do your best to maintain strong relationships with your friends at every stage in your life, because they form a strong bedrock of your emotional and personal well-being. 
to have people that know you and you can talk with about things. As me personally, I've jumped around the country a lot for different parts of my training. And it's always been hard to keep in touch with people from the module before, but building up that network, I wish I had done better at it. I'm still trying to rebuild that network now, but it's good to be able to talk with people that I know and get to speak a little bit about my feelings with them. Do you feel like the section on pediatric trainees and the AAP is a, is a way to do that, to connect with others nationally? I would definitely agree with that statement. Yeah, I think that, and I would love to make that like a, a part of this whole session, encouraging people to reach out to their delegates and their representatives in the section on pediatric trainees. If they are a trainee, that we are always looking for interested people who want to be involved with us, want to be involved in advocacy or spreading their ideas to other programs, or just want to be part of our mentorship opportunities, or just want to bounce ideas off of other pediatricians in other areas of the country. I think that it gives a, it gives an it, it provides an audience for a willing speaker, and uh, which is very very helpful. Well, let me ask you, Amrit, if I'm a resident, how would I find out about the section on pediatric trainees? I mean, what would, how would I do that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, there's multiple ways. The easiest way is just to reach out to your state chapter. Um, there's a lot, um, you, each of the, in, each of the, each um, individual hospitals has a state rep, uh, individual representative that goes to all the AP conferences and things along those lines. So that's the first way to reach out. The other thing too, is that your state AP also has, um, websites as well that you can reach out to as well. And that way you can get involved with the state level as well too. The other thing is that we also have district level representation that me and Josh are part of along with a few other residents and medical students too. And so we, and of course Leah is the head of our district as well too. So that's another way to get involved. And I think that's the really nice thing about the AAP is that there just is a lot of different levels to get involved. So like within your own institution, you can get involved with your AAP delegate. Within the state level, there's stuff you can do. Within the district, which comprises you a few states, there's things you can do. And of course, there's stuff on the national level you can get involved with as well too. And so I echo what Josh was saying. I really encourage everyone to get involved because for me, like I, I just have been recently involved with the AAP and I've really met some awesome people. And I just by talking to them and working with them, I've learned so much from them about even beyond this pediatric cardio, just about the field of pediatrics. And I've taken a lot of great lessons from all the people I've met. I always give huge shout outs. The AAP does not sponsor my podcast. However, I always, um, you know, shout out to how much the AAP has meant to me. And um, I mean, I think how much it does for pediatricians, you know, whether it's advocacy or education and, and really just getting to know wonderful people. I mean, I would not have crossed paths with you guys had it not been for our district because we met each other at the district level and, you know, how fun for us. It's like, wow, new friends. And, you know, like if you were going to another part in the country, I might say, hey, Amrit, I know so-and-so out in Seattle. Why don't you connect with them? You know, so I, I think there's, that's the beauty. And I, you said it perfectly, Josh, that, you know, relationships is where it's at. I mean, that's what gets us through the day, whether it's our own, you know, personal partners or our friendships, our colleagues, you know, that's, that's how we, you know, that's what life's about, I think. And, and certainly partnering up with our patients and families, we do a better job if we feel good. So, hey, listen, guys, I know you're, you're super busy. I see you're both at work. <laughs> so um, I want to thank you so much for your time tonight. And I'm looking forward to working with you um, at the district and with the section. So thanks again. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. You guys have a good night. Thank you so much to Josh and Amrit for their frank conversations about medical training and the areas that really could be improved. Here are my takeaways. Number one, Trainees have a very special place at the American Academy of Pediatrics in the section on pediatric trainees. This is a vibrant, passionate, and very powerful section, and if you are a med student, resident, or fellow, please join this section. Number two, the section on pediatric trainees for their annual advocacy campaign dedicated all of their activities to mental health, and these include schools and community, substance use, mental health in special populations, adverse childhood experiences, 
and its impact on pediatric patients and have created webinars, have hosted a town hall, and inspire many advocacy projects across the country. Number three, we need more mental health training in medical training, both in primary care, hospitalist medicine, and subspecialty training programs. Number four, they have seen the impact of trauma and adverse childhood experiences on the populations they serve and have learned to consider respectfully and with curiosity, do you think that this might in any way impact your children's health? And I think that they have really talked about how to have that conversation with patients and to not offend, but to support and to try and listen. Number five, home visits opened Dr. Misra's eyes, and he realized why families may not follow through on his recommendations. I think this was a really humbling experience. Number six, Dr. Prudent described awareness of his own biases and has stepped back to really look at them and how they might get in the way of patient care. And I think both of them reminded us that we all have biases that we need to be aware of. We can't help it. It's how we were raised. And those implicit biases may directly affect patient care. Number seven, programs have a better awareness of physician trainee mental health, but there's still a lot of stigma about seeking care. Attendings being vulnerable about how they are impacted by loss, grief, their own mental health challenges, including substance use, really makes a huge impact on trainees. Number eight, Josh shares relationships are key to trainee health. And Amrit closes with his advice, relax and know that this is a journey. Take your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.